Now, uh, you may not know that one of the great founders of Atlantic Records in the 1950s was not just Ahmed Erdogan and his brother, but there was a third guy who was uh, actually one of the great musical influences on popular music. Um, he wrote the arrangement for Respect for Aretha Franklin. He wrote the arrangement for Son of a Preacher Man for Dusty Springfield. He wrote the arrangement for Gimme the Night for uh, George Benson. Uh, he went on to produce uh, hits for the Bee Gees, for Bette Midler, and for Shaka Khan, I Feel For You. Yes, it's the great Arif Mardin. Uh, and uh, I'm, I was very, very lucky to uh, be able to interview him in 2003 uh, and uh, 2004. And uh, this interview that you're going to see was done at his house. And I talked to him about some of the great uh, records that he did, and especially about his, his uh, wonderful uh, arrangement work that he did as a producer. So uh, just uh, lie back and enjoy these great interviews with Arif Martin. How does a pop arranger differ from a jazz arranger? Well, uh, let me answer it in a different way. I wear two hats. I'm a producer and an arranger. You know, there are different kinds of producers. You have a songwriter producer, engineer, recording engineer producer. I'm a, an arranger producer. So I think of uh, uh, enhancing uh, the song with my arrangement and make it uh, accessible to a certain segment of the record-buying public. Uh, so, uh, so I arrange according to style and the, and the artist uh, involved. And uh, uh, so actually, it's a production arranging. A jazz arranger, which I also do, uh, and, and thanks to uh, uh, my friend Ziggy Locke, I, I did a lot of uh, uh, arrange, at least one or two arrangements a year for the German uh, Hamburg or the, uh, or the Kern Cologne Orchestra. Uh, it's a pleasure. You just write uh, your theme and orchestrate it and uh, leave space for the solos, uh, you know, etc. So that's it's a different kind of arranging. Would you say that uh, it seems to me that having been a pop arranger all my life, that it's uh, really a great thing that pop arrangers have to come up with catchy stuff. They have to come up with little, little riffs. Right. Uh, 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 called hooks. Hooks. Indeed. So that, so that the hook, hook the listener in. Can you give an example, for instance, from one of your records of a little hook that you thought of and you thought, and it kind of made the record more catchy? Well, I think in Wind Beneath My Wings, uh, there are a lot of hooks. Uh, uh, in, in Shaka Khan's uh, I Feel For You, uh, it's loaded with hooks. Uh, do you want me to sing well, it? I, I don't no, remember. No, 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 we'll actually play the music. But, like, for instance, uh, in I Feel For You, the song was by Prince. Now, uh, how did your production of it differ from, I mean, he, did he give you a demo? How, how was it presented to you? Oh, a song, a song plugger from a publishing uh, firm, uh, Dale Kawashima. Uh, sent me the song. Uh, a lot of people, that Shaka and myself, we liked the song and we, we thought we could do something with it. And uh, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Reggie Griffin, uh, arranger. At that time he had a lot to do with uh, Grandmaster Flash's uh, uh, pioneer rap records. He, he was the arranger. So we worked together and uh, we 
truly loaded the song with, with, with hooks. I don't think they're all princes. We, we had our own. But, I mean, for instance, when you did you receive a demo from Prince? Sure. We, we, the song was out. So we, we received a copy of uh, Prince's version, that's all. And, and did he comment to you about your version? Or uh, well, uh, actually, I wanted him to play on it. I had, I had a vision that uh, have Stevie Wonder and uh, Prince. Uh, Prince was on tour or something, so he couldn't do it. Um, I don't think... Uh, the last time I saw him was like 1992 or something, and we had a very f a fleeting, uh, uh, you know, uh, encounter in his studio, and uh, he smiled. So that must be <laughs> that he liked. <laughs> Great. Um Let's talk about, I mean, you mentioned briefly the idea of you working with other arrangers. Now, you know, you're a great arranger, and some great arrangers do work with other arrangers. Now, why would you, for instance, choose, what are the reasons you choose to work with another arranger? Well, uh, uh, it was uncharted territory for me. It was, it was hip-hop. I had to uh, actually work with somebody who was in that field, and then also learn. I mean, the... the uh, the uh, it, while making that album, uh, I watched John Roby uh, again, another pioneer uh, hip hop uh, uh, producer arranger. I watched him do dazzling edits. In those days, we had tape, cut the tape, uh, incredible edits, uh, and I learned that from him. Uh, so uh, on, on, I feel for you. I emulated him by turning a piece of tape backwards and things like that. Uh, then I also realized that electronic composers of, of, of uh, you know, modern music uh, apparently would do the things like that all the time. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the word arranger, really programmer or, or, or uh, synth arranger, these are all the same thing. I mean, a lot of people, uh, I think uh, programmers are I suppose the contemporary uh, let me let me uh, I think now uh, when you say arranger it, it implies that you are also a programmer uh, the old uh, style arranger would have a score pad pencil and, a, and an eraser and would put every note on the score pad uh, now uh, the same thing is done on computers and you write your arrangement on the keyboard, press the button, and the paper comes out. Uh, so you have now a, a beautifully printed score. Um, I use the first. I have a pencil, eraser, and a score pad, and I do that. Uh, however, uh, when I send it out to be copied, it's computerized parts come out, which is fine. Uh, let, perhaps this is a good time to talk about the beginnings of your career as, a, as an arranger. Now, uh, of course, you really famously got started in, in those early Atlantic days. Now, at that time, you were working as an arranger uh, pretty strictly at, at the very beginning. Isn't that right? Right. Uh, I, was, uh, the, I was the house arranger. Uh, projects would come in. We have signed so-and-so artist. Uh, give us a string arrangement, or 
Wilson Pickett needs this, uh, so a horn arrangement, you know, that kind of a uh, situation, which was great for me because I learned from uh, working with different artists, and, and they were all great artists. But my first, first starting was in Istanbul, Turkey, and I used to be, uh, I had jazz musicians, friends, and I would ask him, uh, how low, low does the tenor go, tenor sax go? This is the note. Okay, what is that? A flat concert low. Okay, fine. And uh, how high can the trumpet go? You, you know, uh, and, and would then write uh, arrangements for a small orchestra, you know, for a small jazz combo, actually, and listen. And um, but the with that, when I with that knowledge, uh, really learned from actually practice. Uh, when I came to Berklee College of Music in Boston. I already had a few things. Uh, in fact, I did, the reason I went to Berkeley is because I won a scholarship, the Quincy Jones Scholarship, because uh, I had orchestrated and, and, and composed the, my compositions uh, for a 10-piece orchestra. Two trumpets, one trombone, tenor, alto, and baritone sax, and three rhythm. Um, for a A team of 1956 uh, that Quincy Jones put together in New York, Art Farmer, Phil Woods, Hank Jones, you know, all these guys. And they played my pieces, and Quincy then sent the tape to the school. He said, I found the guy I want to give, uh, you know, uh, uh, the scholarship. And uh, when I heard that tape, I said, did I write this? Because it was like so unbelievably played, you know. So I did have the knowledge, but when I came to Berkeley College, um, I was fortunate to, to study with Herb Pomeroy. Herb Pomeroy's big band was then available uh, for me, and I would write arrangements, copy the parts, copy them, you know, like until five in the morning. Uh, big band, how many pieces? 18 pieces, and I used to copy. Maybe we'll have to explain what copying also means to the listener and go uh, to the rehearsal, listen to my arrangement, and he would critique it. This won't do, this is great, this is not good, you know. And uh, so that was my really training ground at Berkeley, uh, writing uh, for his superb band. Um, copying means that once you write a uh, score on a score, uh, master score uh, paper, individual parts must be copied. First trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, saxophones, you know. So then you have to extract all these parts and, and put it on individual uh, sheet music. So when you came to uh, the Atlantic days, now I know in the beginning uh, a lot of the stuff was mono, uh, so therefore there couldn't be too much overdubbing. Now were you... Uh, there was. I, 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 I mean, I'm interrupting you because, because uh, in fact, I... I wrote an article about the great engineer Tom Dowd, another of my teachers, uh, will be in Pro Sound in May. Uh, Tom Dowd asked for an eight-track recorder, and the, the owners of Atlantic, the partners, Ahmed Erdogan, Nesui Erdogan, Jerry Wexler, agreed. They paid the money. They had an Ampex eight-track machine. The amplifiers would go like skyscrapers, you know. And um, it was a... Uh, uh, a two-inch uh, tape, 
and he was able to overdub if he wanted to. It was used as a backup. He would record a session and the, the producers would insist on a finished product, mono, with the correct reverb, with the correct equalization, correct cues, and he was such a great engineer that he would do that. Uh, but at the same time, he would record onto the 8-track uh, simultaneously, probably leaving a few tracks open for overdubs. And when stereo came and became popular, he was able to go back to those 8-tracks and, and make proper stereos, not fake stereos. Uh, so all those fabulous Atlantic uh, classic masters were the, the stereo versions were actually for real. And uh, we used to do overdubs. Uh, I remember he telling me that Ray Charles didn't like uh, the background parts sung by his ladies. And he said I, that he liked to sing it. So, uh, and the song is called I Believe to My Soul. And Ray Charles sang all the backgrounds. So that's the use of an 8-track machine. A track at that time, there were only maybe three in existence. One, Les Paul had one, uh, and Columbia had one, and I think maybe the State Department had it because they, you know, that's it. So Atlantic got the fourth eight, uh, eight track machine. Jerry Wexler was saying, uh, I was talking to him uh, the other day, and he was saying that most of the stuff that he did uh, in Memphis, but especially in Muscle Shoals, he would send the stuff to you in New York and you do the strings in New York. Right. Now, that there were good reasons for doing that. Sure, because in New York you have people from, uh, the, you know, the Philharmonic uh, uh, freelancing, so we have better players here. Uh, Muscle Shoals, I think, at that time, whether it was four track or eight track, I'm not sure. I, I, uh, but I remember that uh, in like 1967-68, it was four-track. We did all the John Prines and all that uh, on four-track. And, and also, I suppose, uh, in terms of studio space, the studios in New York were, were more accommodating of a large set. Definitely, definitely. And Muscle Shoals uh, was great for a rhythm tr uh, section. Uh, but of course, uh, we did fabulous uh, horns, uh, Muscle Shoals in Memphis, the Memphis horns. Uh, did you write the arrangements for the Memphis Horns? Uh, did, did no, it, it, it would be a, a sort of a, a joint effort. Tom had a lot to do with it too. Uh, we would sing a line and they would take it from there. Or they would come up with something, uh, specifically uh, parts, but then they would improve it. So in other words, the idea was I mean, he, he talked a lot about the collaborative right. nature of it, that everybody could put right. ideas. And, right. and, and so what you're saying is those arrangements came together collaboratively. Right, right. There's one thing that, that uh, Jerry Wexler said uh, in his book, which was quite amusing, where he was obviously complimenting you, and he said, you've done such a great job. And he said, with, he said, with very little kibitzing from me, and he said, and at that point, uh, Arif didn't need any kibitzing from me. Now, how do you feel about the point at which an arranger doesn't, you know, becomes a producer? I mean, if you talk about, you can talk about perhaps a little bit about the psychology and the state of mind an arranger gets to when he gets that extra overview. 
Well, uh, Jerry Wexler uh, uh, was the senior producer, and he he had the the most difficult job of of, of choosing the song, bringing the song in, talking to publishers, and also uh, having artists in in charge of artist relations. So, myself and Tom Dowd were the uh, younger assistants uh, doing some of the creative stuff, definitely, but he had the, the big job of finding, you know, son of a preacher man. He, we didn't do that, he, he found it, you know. So, uh, but we became sort of like a trio uh, with specific uh, functions uh, uh, for each person. And mine was usually uh, to take care of the, the chords, go out to the, into the studio and conduct or uh, not like classical conducting, like to be in charge of the musicians. Do you want to do that? You know, that kind of thing, attitude. And Tommy recording in the booth with, uh, with Wexler. And um, again, Wexler would press the button and says, that is too slow. Why don't you do this? So he's the, he, he, he was the boss. But uh, we had a fabulous, fabulous time. And as, 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 he, as you mentioned it, if there was something good, he wouldn't, he wouldn't kibitz, he wouldn't say anything. Sounds fine. So, but I mean, at what point did you feel that you were really, uh, you, that you, well, for, first of all, he says that at one point it was obvious that you were perfectly capable producing on your own, and it's that change from being a ranger to being a ranger-producer. At what point did you feel that really came together? Oh, he, he gave me an assignment with Brooke Benton, uh, and he gave me the song, Tony Joe White's uh, Rainy Night in Georgia. He said, go and record. <laughs> and uh, we did. Uh, and when I came back with the, with the tape, uh, I thought that I had a great time doing, you know, recording Brooke Benton and had a, you know, interaction with the musicians and et cetera. But when, I, when, when Amit and, 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 and Jerry heard the tape, they said, wow, this is fantastic. This is going to be a hit. Really? I'm saying, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, couldn't see the forest from the trees. Yeah. Uh, so, again, I added, I had a certain vision for that particular song. It was like, uh, a, like a, a, a mini f small film. You know, I had this uh, harmonica overdub idea and, um, you know, a, like a southern landscape and uh, nostalgic. So I put it together, it became a top five record. Perhaps you could speak a little bit about the way when you hear a song uh, that you conceive of an arrangement from, from start to finish. I mean, that you get an, how you get ideas and how you manifest those ideas. And maybe give an example of a specific song. Well, I mean, that was one of them, Raining Out in Georgia. I had the uh, idea of, uh, of, of a certain nostalgic feeling. Uh, let me answer it in another way. How, instead of having a definite idea, how a, an, an arrangement was built block by block as you go was, I feel for you. Uh, all right, let's do this here. Well, wait a minute. 
this sounds good. All right, so let's use that and move on. So this is like adding stuff, subtracting stuff. And uh, the way it finished, we were amazed at how, you know, how it progressed. As opposed to, for example, from a distance, Bette Midler's, I had a certain idea and where I, I wanted the strings, you know, how to, how to progress. Same thing with Wind Beneath My Wings. Uh, but I had to wait until the vocals were done. Everything was in place. Then, of course, with Wind Beneath My Wings, you're also dealing with movie people, film people. Uh, they may say, you know, the first version you sent us uh, with the strings here and the guitar there, the director likes it. So you can't touch that. <laughs> if the director likes it, then that's one version. And, and, and the record version uh, had more drums and more bass. Same vocal, same track, but slightly different ar arrangement. So we're not talking about writing with, with a pencil. Uh, we're talking about trying things and adding things. So this falls, in, falls into the category of uh, producer arranging.